we're going to use our notes more than anything today because today is an educational sermon where we're going to do some history, we're going to look back, we're going to figure out where we are now on the whole issue of infant baptism, baby dedication, and salvation. Uh, there is a lot of confusion in the world today. I, I hear it frequently. I've actually asked on many occasions, what's the difference between infant baptism and baby dedication, and why we do one and not the other, and, and vice versa, and things like that. And as we have done in the past, when we do something new, I like to educate us on what we're doing and why we're doing it. I don't want any of us to have a misunderstanding or a lack of information about what we do as a church and how we represent ourselves. So what's new and different today is that we're going we're gonna to dedicate three children who are not from our community. Their tie to the church is that their families used to be a part of the church when they lived here. And we're talking about grandparents and aunts and uncles mainly. But there's a family connection to the church and they, they want to come back home to their roots to do this. So, so we've taken on this task. I felt like it was led by God. And so we're welcoming in these guests and we're, we're, we're making them our honored guests. And we're doing something different and we're going to talk about it. So I want to start with the history of infant baptism. Now I thought I knew the history, but I didn't want to tell you what I thought I knew. I want to tell you what I know that I know. So I went back and did the research and I, I have the history of infant baptism and we're going to cover 2,000 years in five or six minutes. So it's going to be a fast history, but let's just work our way through the notes. So history of infant baptism. Number one, the practice began in the third century, approximately three generations after the apostles had all died, and became universal under the emperor Constantine. Now what I mean by universal is the entire church practiced infant baptism under the leadership of Constantine. You remember it became the official religion of the Roman world under Constantine. And during that time, everyone started practicing infant baptism. Now, it was not practiced by the apostles. It was not practiced in the first or second generation after the apostles. It came about in the third generation. So number two, as Christianity became the state religion of Rome... The idea that people were converted to Christianity was supplanted by the idea that they were born into Christianity. And we'll stop there. This is really important. Before Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was really good in some ways and not so good in other ways, as are most things, what took place was people stopped converting to Christianity, meaning they were sinners who became forgiven, they were pagans who became righteous, they were not followers of Christ who became followers of Christ, and that was the main thing because it was new to everybody. It was new to the Jews, it was new to the Gentiles, it was new to the religious and the irreligious. So it was a new message, and it required a conversion, which is still what it requires. But when it became the official religion of the empire people started to transition to, we're Christians, therefore our children are Christians. So the children weren't converted, the children were assigned at birth, 
their religion, much like they had done when they worshipped the emperors and when they worshipped foreign gods and when they worshipped false gods. It worked the same way. You were born into the religion. And so people assumed that their kids were Christians because they were Christians. This was their way of life. It was the normal way of thinking. And during the Roman Empire, just to end it, the last sentence there, some went as far as to claim that Christianity was part of your Roman citizenship. That if you were a citizen in Rome, you were definitely a Christian. And if you gained citizenship in with the Romans, then you also gained salvation. And during that time, infant baptism became the ceremonial seal of that belief. So the idea that my kids are saved because I'm saved was sealed by the Catholic Church during that time. You should also know that the Catholic Church, the word Catholic means universal. It means worldwide. It means the only. They were the only church at the time. There were not denominations. There were not Protestants. They were the church. Okay, When they, when they became known as the Catholic Church, I'm not for certain, but they, they were the organization. And under Constantine, this, this kind of thing started to happen. So there was a change. Let's read number three. In its earliest state, before Constantine, infant baptism was for the parents, not the child. The parents came forward, and their child was baptized as a statement from the parents to the church, saying, we are going to raise this child in a Christian home. We are going to teach them Christian principles. We are going to expose them to God's Word. We're going to expose them to the Gospel. And one day they will, hopefully, also convert to Christianity. They are sinners who need saved, just like we were. And that was a clear understanding and a clear practice. It was an expression of a family's commitment to raise their child in a Christian home, to point them towards Jesus and Christian faith. I want to point out that this is still a practice of the Presbyterian Church. This original concept of infant baptism is today practiced by the Presbyterian Church. Their official teaching on infant baptism is that it is a dedication of the child by the parents to raise them in a godly home. It's very clearly outlined in their official documents, and it's, it's usually taught in their church. Now, not all Presbyterian churches are the same, just like not all Baptist churches are the same. But I think it only fair to point out that this original practice is still practiced today in some areas. And so the concept I would not disagree with in the Presbyterian Church. They also baptize um, in response to salvation. So they have a believer's baptism as well. They have infant baptism that clearly is a dedication. And they have um, believer's baptism that is clearly a response to being saved. So we don't have a lot of issue with that. But that's not the common practice. They're the only ones I know of that still do that and, and teach that clearly. Number four, in, infant baptism in the time of Augustine. So we're jumping to the 5th century now. Augustine was uh, a great teacher and a terrible teacher. He, he was a, a huge thinker, very intelligent, and sometimes he went down a rabbit trail and wound up in the wrong place, and sometimes he followed logic and truth and got to a very good place. So a lot of good things are attributed to Augustine, but a lot of bad things came about because of his thinking. 
he would sometimes take a concept too far, wind up in the extreme, and, and things would be done because of it, and infant baptism was one of those things. So in its earliest state before Constantine, infant baptism, excuse me, number four, infant baptism in the time of Augustine became a requirement for salvation within the Catholic Church. And remember, this was the only church. Okay, So you could actually say within the church. It became a requirement for salvation, which we know it cannot be true. There are no works associated with salvation. We know that. In that day, the common person did not have Bibles they could read in their own language, in their own possession. They had to rely on others, and this was a teaching that came from Constantine and his followers, and it was placed on the people, so they believed it. Augustine. I'm going to say it backwards. You know who I'm talking about. It also became, the second blank in uh, number four, a guarantee of a child's salvation if they should die in childhood. So the practice was, as soon as possible, you baptize the baby because that was required for salvation, so it needed to happen anyway. And if they should die before maturity, that was their guarantee for salvation. If they weren't baptized and they died, they would go to what they called purgatory, which we also don't believe in. Both of these beliefs are still taught by the official Catholic Church doctrine, in case you were interested. So under Augustine, it really took a turn where it was attached to your salvation in two different ways. And, and that's really where the problem arises. So number five, many Protestant churches. So we've jumped past the Reformation now. The Reformation took place. The Reformation was all about, we're going to read the Bible, we're going to understand the Bible, and we're going to do what the Bible says, regardless of what anyone else tells us. So all the things that we're being told in church that aren't from the Bible, we're not going to do anymore, and we're not going to listen to anymore. And all the people that are telling us things not found in Scripture, we're going to start ignoring them, and we're going to rely on Scripture, solas scripturis, Scripture only, for salvation and doctrine. And so they read through the Bible, and they didn't find anything about salvation being attached to baptism for the infant or the adult. Not a requirement, not a guarantee. And they said, well, we need to fix this. So most Protestant churches today who practice infant baptism, a few are the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and, and there's others. Okay, I didn't try to create an exhaustive list. Most Protestant churches today, many Protestant churches today, fall somewhere between the Presbyterians and the Catholics. What I'm saying is there is a wide range of practice, okay? And it varies in belief and practice from church to church. One Methodist church will not have the same belief and practice as another. One Lutheran church will not have the same belief and practice as another. One Anglican church will not have the same belief and practice as another. And it goes back and forth, okay? For all the denominations. Some, like the Presbyterians, stick with the original method and the original purpose. Others mix it up a little bit. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's the history of infant baptism from the beginning to today. And, and really, if you want to find out what a church believes in practice, is you need to ask questions. 
You need to say, what do you believe about this? Or what is your practice? Uh, do you do this? Do you do that? And find out what's going on. So continuing in your notes, talk about the Reformation some more. And remind you that the Reformation took place between number four and number five. The Reformation and the development of Protestant churches, protest, they protested, they reformed, Protestant churches brought about an important change. So one, two, and three are preliminary to number four. So one, two, and three, we can kind of take together. Number four is, is the result. So Protestant churches after the Reformation, number one, recognizing that the Bible not even once mentions infant baptism. Not only does it not mention it, it doesn't refer to it. There is no shadow of it. There is no inkling of it. And number two, recognizing that every single time baptism is mentioned in Scripture, it is as a response to salvation, with the possible exception of John the Baptist and Jesus, but they were looking directly forward to that very salvation. Okay, they were setting a precedent and an example. And number three, recognizing that salvation is a conversion experience. We go from darkness to light, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from death to life, from unforgiven to forgiven, from pagan to Christian. Salvation is a conversion experience received by grace through faith, not by or through any works. So if we attach a work to it, we've, we've desecrated salvation. So the result, number four, many, we're talking Protestant churches, dismissed infant baptism as a false teaching giving false hope. So there's a group of Protestant churches that just say, nope, not doing, not doing it, not having anything to do with it. We're not even going to talk about it. That was one solution. Some continued unsure of how to find the balance. And that's why we have a variety of approaches within a single denomination. Each church had to figure out what they were going to do, how they were going to respond, what their practice was going to be, so it varies from church to church. And others simply carried on as usual, didn't change a thing. Didn't change a thing. So two camps developed. Those who do baby dedications in place of baby baptisms, and those who baptize under unclear and unexplained doctrines. And if you want, there's a third camp, like I mentioned, because I'm actually pretty impressed. The Presbyterians have kept true. Now, it's not the practice that I would necessarily choose, but I can respect what they've done. So there's your three camps among the Protestants. So the solution is the baby dedication. I alluded to it in that most, a lot of churches have gone to the dedication. We are going to dedicate babies today. Here's the solution. Here's how we got here. Number one, the idea of parents committing to raise their children in a Christian home and further committing to present them, to present to them an opportunity to choose Christ was still a very good thing. Nobody ever, anywhere, ever even thought, oh, this is bad that parents should want their kids to be believers. We celebrate this. We endorse this. We help with this. Anytime a parent says, I want to raise my children to grow up to be Christians, we pat them on the back, say, that's exactly what we want you to do. How can we help? We fully embrace and get behind that. And the Protestant churches did that. They said, we don't want to lose the, the commitment, and we don't want to lose the practice. We're just not sure of the method because of the confusion that comes with it and the false teaching that was attached to it back in the 5th century. Therefore, number two, baby dedication 
retained the original purpose while abandoning the original method. Now say, how can we do that? What, how, do we, how do we accomplish that? Well, the method is not in Scripture. I want to say, say number three, because we need to be honest here. We also recognize that the Bible does not even once mention baby dedication. There, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us, instructs us, to dedicate babies. Okay? But many churches endorse baby dedication as a positive spiritual practice, practice that does not contradict any scriptural mandate. And that's where we are. You know, we, we have a lot of things that we practice that aren't mandated in Scripture. We require most of our missionaries, if not all of our missionaries, to be a part of a missions organization that holds them accountable and handles their funds and sends them out and, and oversees them. That's not in Scripture. Okay? Um, we, we do a lot of public relation type things. Being involved in the community, serving the community. Now, we're commanded to, to be an outreach and to be ambassadors, but we're not told how to do that. But we practice that on occasion. We practice it sometimes. There's a lot of things we correctly do that aren't mandated in Scripture because they fit with Scripture. Baby dedications fit with Scripture. During the dedication, I'm going to read the portion from Deuteronomy that, that talks us about when you sit at your table, when you walk down the road, as you go and as you come, remind Remind your children about the Word of God, about the promises, about the commands. And that's how we're going to start the dedication process. We're going to read that scripture. This is part of that process. So baby dedication is a way to maintain the principle of making that promise. And it's a good thing for parents to say, hey, you know what? We want to publicly say we're going to raise our children in a Christian home. And we encourage that. To define it a little bit more, your notes say we as Baptists. Well, we as Baptists endorse the desire of a family to publicly declare their desire to raise a child in a Christian family, encouraging the child to have a relationship with God from the earliest ages. And this is the language we're going to use today, and it's the language we use every time we dedicate a baby. We endorse this. I don't know how, I don't know a better word to say we are fully behind and fully support the concept. We also, as a church, have committed through Sunday school, through Awanas, and through youth group, and through parenting classes, and, and through church and other ways to help families raise their kids. We, we fully understand this is a difficult world to raise children in, it's a difficult world to raise grandchildren in. It's a difficult world to be the parent of an adult in. And, and we want to help in any way we can the process of representing God to our families. So we endorse the concept. But, number two, we do not want to encourage any confusion as to the outcome of such a dedication. So we don't baptize because there are centuries of teaching that connect the act of baptism to a state of salvation. And I, I, we, we do not want anybody ever to think they're saved because they're baptized. When we do a baptize, bab, believer's baptism, we sit down and I hear a testimony. I've learned that I want that testimony in writing so I can read it. 
the person who writes it usually spends a little bit more time thinking about it, writes exactly what they want to say, then I look at it, and I look for things that indicate salvation. One time there was a testimony of a lady, she was actually in a church membership class, and we also asked for a salvation testimony for membership, and she said, well, I, I know I'm saved because at my husband's funeral I saw Jesus, and he wouldn't have been there unless I was saved. Wow, I don't think that's how it works. We had to stop immediately and, and say, well, let's talk about that. And then a very respectful, very loving conversation took place between another pastor and this, this woman. I this time got to watch. And, and he explained to her the gospel and what salvation was and how you're saved. And at the end of the explanation, he said, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? She said, yes, I would. And she got saved right then and there. And then she got baptized, and then she became a member of the church. That lady just passed away about two months ago. And it's good to know she's in heaven today. She was in her late 70s at that point in time. And she came to church because it made her feel good before she was saved. We don't want anyone connecting salvation to something, an experience they had, a baptism, anything else. We want to make sure that a believer is a believer before we baptize them as a believer. We want to make sure that we don't present any confusion in, in the area of infant baptism. So we don't baptize. We don't have any holy water. We don't do anything like that. We dedicate. And we'll ask the question, do you promise to raise your child as best you can with, with the support of your family and, and, and the church family. To raise up this child in a home that represents Christ and leads them towards a relationship with Him. Something like that. And they'll say, yes, we will. And then we pray for them. We don't make it a huge ceremony. We don't, also don't want to communicate that something magical happened during the ceremony. So we endorse, but we try not to confuse and we try not to encourage any extra-biblical power to the ceremony. And even today, among those who do not practice any religion, there is the thought that baptism is connected to salvation. That's how engrossed it became in the 5th century. And so we have to be aware of that, and we have to watch out for it. It's even there today. So number three, therefore we as Baptists enthusiastically perform baby dedication for any family that requests it and help them in raising their child as much as possible. But it is upon request and it is not required. It's upon request. It's not required. So for anyone listening online or anyone here today who thought that salvation came through baptism or who thought that salvation came through being born to a Christian family, I want to answer the question, where does true salvation come from? How are my sins truly forgiven? How do I gain a relationship with God? How do I become a person who God looks on and says, welcome into my kingdom after I die? Well, it's, there's, it's one thing. Summed it up in one statement, and we're going to look at a few scriptures. This is it. 
It is an acknowledgement of my need to have my sins forgiven. That's where it starts. I have to acknowledge I'm a sinner. I have to acknowledge that my sin carries with it a just penalty of hell. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And my acceptance of God's gift of forgiveness. So it is an acknowledgement of my need for my sins to be forgiven and my acceptance of God's gift of forgiveness made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How cool would it be if someone said to you, hey, I'm going to pay your mortgage today. Or I'm going to pay off your car today. I'm going to pay off your credit cards today. I have my checkbook. I have my pen. I have the money. All we need to do is go to the bank or the credit union or the mortgage office, and I will write the check and hand it over today. All you have to do is accept my gift and show me where to write the check, and, and I'll deliver it. That's all you have to do. That gift would be incredibly awesome, but it's not yours until you take it. They can write the check. They can sign the check. They can tear it out of their booklet. They can even hold it out for you to take in your own grubby little hand. But until it's in your grubby little hand, or until it's delivered and deposited to the person you owe the money, it's not real. It's not a reality. Your mortgage isn't paid because someone said they would. Your car is not paid for because someone said they would. It is paid for when they pay for it. Well, we owe a debt to God for our sin. Somebody has to pay the price for our sin. God is holding the check, if you will. It is written, paid in full, the price of your sin. He has it written. It's torn out. He's ready to deliver it. He's ready to pay the price. And our job is to accept it and let it be delivered. God is ready to pay the price. The price is death. The wages of sin is death. It requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice requires death. We can die eternally in hell for our sin, or Jesus, who already wrote the check, can deposit the payment that he has written on the cross. He can deliver the payment in full so that we are forgiven, declared righteous, made holy before God. We admit that we're a sinner. We believe that Jesus paid the price. We confess our need and we accept the gift. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of God's requirements. His requirements are holiness, sinlessness. That's not us because we're part of the all have sinned. Romans 6.23 tells us that sin must be paid for, which means hell. Sin requires hell. There's a but. There's good news. God has offered to pay it for you. He's offered to make the deposit and to clear your slates. Romans 5.8 says Jesus died for us in advance. It says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, prepaying the price. The check is written. It's signed. It's torn out. It's being held forward. It only requires the taking. He died for our sin in advance. Romans 10.13 says if we call out to God for forgiveness, He will grant it. He's never going to pull the check back and go, ha, ah, fooled you. That's not how God works. He's holding it out. And you lean forward a bit, he leans forward a bit. 
You reach out a little bit, He reaches out more. And He says, this is for you. Here's, here's the gift. Here's your forgiveness. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, we need to make our confession of belief to God, request His forgiveness, and receive His gift of salvation. We don't tell our neighbor that Jesus died for my sins and we think that's great. We tell God that I am a sinner, Jesus died for my sins, and I am truly grateful. I accept that gift of forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. I receive that. And then Mark 1.15, in response, we repent or we change our sinful ways. We're already repenting in the process of being saved because I'm changing from a lost person on my way to hell to a found person on my way to heaven. I'm changing from a sinner to someone forgiven of sin, from unholy to holy. But then we continue to change and we continue to live for Christ. We figure out what He wants. We live for Him. We, we understand His instructions and we live according to them. We try to share our new faith with others. So if there's anyone that thought they were saved for a bad reason like you saw a vision, or you were baptized as a baby, or your parents or grandparents were Christians, and you've never accepted Christ on your own, maybe today's the day. I've been praying that if someone is present, and that's the case, that they would receive Christ today. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to prolong it. We're not going to sing sad songs. I'm just going to present a prayer that you can also pray. You don't pray it to me. I don't need to hear it. You pray it to God. He hears your silent prayers. He hears your out loud prayers. Doesn't matter. You pray it to God. I'm going to give you words. And if these words are in agreement with your heart, then you say them to God. And at the end of the prayer, you'll be a saved person. You will have repented. And you will continue to repent of your sins. Here's what that prayer looks like. Everyone's going to bow their head and close their eyes out of respect for one another. I'm going to say a few words, and if that's your heart, then you repeat those words to God. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I realize I deserve to spend eternity in hell. But I thank you for dying on the cross. Paying the price for my sin so that I can have forgiveness. I accept your gift and I thank you for it. And I will do my best to live the life you want me to live from now on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, for us who are already saved, there's a conversation you can have with someone who's not. Find out where their hope is. Is it in religion? Is it in works? Is it in being an American? Is it the success they've held? Whatever it is. Where is their faith held? Point them towards the gospel. There's only one way to get to heaven, through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. You might have to back up a minute and say, hey, yeah, we're all sinners. You, me, he, she, him, her, we're all sinners. And, and sin requires the wages of sin is death. 
You, you can all quote that scripture. And you can carry on the conversation and then maybe you can pray with someone and lead them to Christ. That's something we should all strive for. That's something we should all pray for. So I encourage you to be ready. If you want these scriptures on a piece of paper handy for you, there's some in the back, in the little rack. They're called the Romans Road. They're right there for you. You can take those, put them in your Bible, hang on to them. But that's the challenge for today. If you're not saved, get saved. If you are saved, help someone else get saved. I'm going to just close very quickly in prayer. Father, thank you for our time. Bless the rest of our day, wherever we go, whatever we do. Please give us opportunities to represent you to the world around us. In your son's name, amen.